The technology landscape is exploding, and it has never been a better time to be an entrepreneur. There's so much information out there, it can be hard to know where to start or who to trust. Your host, David Paul, is a seasoned venture capital investor that has founded his own investment firm, DWP Capital. He's a straight shooter that cuts through all the noise to bring you real and authentic conversations with investors, founders, and operators in the startup ecosystem. Join him each week to stay current with today's trends and get smarter about startups and tech investing. Today, I'm interviewing Daniel Graf Radford, who is the CEO of Allbound, which is a partner relationship manager. Uh, Allbound is used for a variety of different companies, um, particularly in technology, to help their indirect sales channels and enable channel sales. Today, we're going to be talking to Daniel about his transition from being a software executive to a non-founder CEO and turning a company that was on its way to being a zero to being one of the fastest growing companies in MarTech and while keeping everybody in a remote first environment after the pandemic. Uh, prior to Allbound, he was the chief strategy officer at OnSolve, which was a $100 million plus software company backed by private equity firm Veritas Capital. Uh, prior to that, he was with Atlanta-based um, PGI. He was the VP of product and the vice president of OmniLink, which was a hardware technology company. Every great man is usually eclipsed by even a better wife. So I want to talk about Esther for a little bit, Daniel. Can you tell the audience a little bit about what Esther's doing in her entrepreneurship? Because you have a you know a house full of entrepreneurs. Yeah, no, she's a uh, very impressive. So Esther Graf Radford runs Graf Radford Law. I like to say that she fights bullies. So she fights for freedom of speech. She fights for um, people that are, are facing unfair eviction and issues about fairness in the workplace. I think that when I get home uh, and get a chance to talk to her, you know, and talking about what happens in technology companies, a lot of times our stories are over long periods of time and it feels like every one of her cases could be a Matlock episode. It's, you know, succinct. There's a good guy, there's a bad guy. And uh, it's, it's a lot of fun to hear uh, the things that she takes on. I wouldn't want to be on the other end of Esther in a courtroom. No, no one does. She was uh, top of her class there at Emory Law School and she clerked for a federal judge. And, you know, even if she had amazing opposing counsel, it's still an unfair fight to argue against Esther, that's for sure. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you have some children that are kind of getting into the entrepreneurship technology game. My son, who is 17 years old, works for Mountaintop Studios, which is backed by Andreessen Horowitz. Uh, they're making a shooter video game. He can't share more, much more than that. It's in a stealth mode until the game launches. <laughs> but uh, he is doing great there and um, will be going to a university. We're not sure which one. We're waiting to hear back from three of them uh, next year. So he started programming at what age? Yeah. So we homeschooled the kids for about 10-ish years. And he uh, enrolled himself in a dual enrollment at Gwinnett Tech. So there's a cool, you know, I guess, secret that, that shouldn't be a secret here in Georgia, which is you can go to college for free while you're in high school um, if you're dual enrolled here. And that includes some of the best universities like Georgia Tech. And he's taking classes this year at Oglethorpe in their business school, which is fantastic. So he started taking programming classes 
at 13 or 14 years old. And he was building computers at 11 and 12 years old because he wanted to uh, get an Oculus Rift. He knew he had to build a computer to make that work. He has gotten uh, very far along with this and knows he wants to be on the business side of technology. Not sure where he gets that from. <laughs> yeah, I was um, doing a lot different activities when I was his age. Yeah, you know, these are good activities for being in a pandemic, working at a tech company, <laughs> building computers. Uh, you know, I think when we were teenagers, you know, we were much more out and about for a lot of reasons. But, you know, it's a really hard thing to be stuck at home with your dad all day during a pandemic. So I think it's going to be very different when people look back at being teenagers and middle schoolers and, and so forth at this at this era versus what we look back on. And your career prior to being the uh, the founder of Allbound, or excuse me, the CEO of Allbound, was primarily a lot around sales, product, and strategy. So how do you you know how do you look at at you know product? And I think that's a really good segue into into Allbound, which is a portfolio company of mine. And um, I'm going to be like every other podcaster and pump my own pump my own book because I can and it's my show. We had a problem definitely with, with, with product market fit. So what, tell me a little bit about what you did within product at, at your last companies and kind of what led to that phone call into Allbound. Yeah. So the first venture capital back company I worked at was called OmniLink Systems. And we were most well known for GPS ankle bracelets for house arrest. What was really interesting is that we had some really great innovations on that front and quickly gained large market share. And as you would imagine, they use a fair amount of cellular connectivity to work. And so at one point we were, I was told that we were uh, by volume Sprint's third largest customer. Uh, <laughs> we, we pinged the heck out of those devices as you'd imagine. Yeah. And um, that w allowed us to get meetings with any carrier at any level we wanted. And we were able to pivot and sell uh, tracking solutions through channel retailers such as Verizon. We had a device called True Response that was in their retail. And we had another one, Car Connection, um, that was a partnership with Audiovox Electronics that was sold in every AT&T store. And then we had uh, a WeGo little phone before kids were given iPhones for kid tracking and connectivity and sold in Sprint stores. And so we were able to suddenly have tons of people selling our products that didn't work at our company. And as a young guy with these new products and these new channels, I thought, wow, I'm going to be rich. And we put this stuff out there and, and then sometimes it would sell and sometimes it wouldn't. And you'd have to figure out, you know, how to incent these people, you know, how do you get these channel partners to sell your stuff alongside what they're already selling? And so that was a really good education for me on what could be a massive amount of success and what are the challenges of channel sales. Later on uh, at PGI, when we were leading an innovation lab to come up with new products for a public company, a lot of our success was selling through carriers like Deutsche Telekom and others. So again, applying those same lessons of taking your product, putting you know a carrier's logo and Salesforce in front of it and, and selling. You know, there's a lot of challenges. You got to fly to Germany to make that happen. You've got to train a whole bunch of people to make that happen. You've got to get them sales materials, keep them incentive, keep them excited. 
And it's a really manual and strenuous product. Uh, because really uh, channel sales is all about behavioral change, right? Into getting somebody to sell your product, a mass uh, skew of products that they, or tons of skews of products that they already have. Yeah, that's right. So they they don't wake up thinking about selling your product. They wake up about selling and think about selling their own product. And so how do you keep get your product to be in, in, involved in that process? And then, you know, I got a call. I was at my brother-in-law's wedding uh, in Louisiana and I was walking. It was, a, it was a, at a farm that, that, that he was getting married. At. I was walking through a field to get to the wedding. And Jim Armstrong, um, who had been the founder of JDA, and I had backed, uh, you know, OmniLink where I'd been before, called me and said that he had a company, would I take a look at it, called Allbound, that he had invested in and was on the board and he needed a new CEO. And we'll, we'll get into that in just a second, I'm sure. When I looked at the product, I had one of these aha moments of how did I not think of this? It automated all of that flying around and training people, the late night co-branding of content for partners, the deal registration and channel conflict of one partner going after a deal that another partner was already in. And it just took all these manual processes and not only made it easier, but brought forward the data so you can make smarter decisions. And I just love the product. It wasn't that hard for Jim to convince me that this was something I should do with myself, which was actually a really interesting process from there. That's how that's how I got to Allbound was just falling in love with the product based on my own successes and failures in uh, channel management. Going from a company because at that time you were you weren't a PGI you were at Onsol which was a very well capitalized company very well resourced and you know you were in the C level C suite I'm sure you were very well compensated much more than you were compensated working for a you know one and a half million dollar ARR company. I mean, what was that like, you know, jumping in uh, from being, you know, the C-level, lots of resources, lots of structure into, you know, a, a company that, you know, wasn't yours, you didn't found it, and kind of being undercapitalized? Yeah, OnSolve, like a lot of private equity-backed companies, was a roll-up of mass notification systems. So going from zero to $110 million in revenue in 18 months was a lot of mergers and acquisitions, which was a lot of uh, uh, great experience for me as a head of product, head of strategy over there. And what was interesting is, you know, partway through my time at OnSolve, the CEO at the time, you know, quit. And so there was no CEO. So I was able to get a lot of time with Veritas, which is for me really great career-wise understanding, you know, how uh, deal structures work with them. And they're just very bright people over there at Veritas. And uh, so then I think your question's fair, which is how did Jim convince me to take a 50% pay cut and start commuting out to the desert? Um, <laughs> or something that was so little. And, you know, I think that it's nothing negative about Onsol. I was really enjoying what I was doing there. I think I saw the massive opportunity of Allbound. And I was just so drawn to what this could be, that there was this space of channel technology that was just emerging and that Allbound had a few of the really key pieces at the time to be successful, uh, that there was a really clear path on how to get the things that weren't working well working and uh, make it better. You know, I got to spend some time with Scott Salkin, the founder of Allbound, who had moved back into a marketing role over at uh, Gainsight and uh, really enjoyed his passion for being disruptive in, in that market. And there were just such, there were, I think, 12 people in a room in Arizona 
I think that's what it was when I joined. And um, so it was really interesting to see such bright people willing to take on uh, a 20 year old industry and shake things up. And I think it was number one, the product, number two, the investors and number three, the people. And that was the order I met them in. And I just really think that it was uh, a good fit for me for those reasons. And you know, sometimes as a first time CEO, you get a little bit of a fixer upper. There were things that needed to be improved upon when I got there, but it's been an amazing growth story. We are one of the fastest growing companies in uh, marketing technology, as you pointed out. And, you know, we're a market leader in channel technology and have amazing customers like General Electric and Zoom and Imperva, Cambium Networks, and many others that rely on us for some of the most scaled uh, channel programs in the world. No, it really was a great outcome. You know, how I think about this, and I remember that because I was running the company at the time, which is absolutely terrifying. I, you know, I remember vividly telling you as a technologist that I was kind of avoiding the R&D department because I was not a technologist. And I think you looked at me like I was absolutely insane, which is probably the right answer for someone who is being the interim CEO of a software company, somebody who was hiding from the R&D department because I really did not know what was going on. But luckily, I wasn't there too long before you stepped in. Tell me when you tell me kind of what the experience was going through that interviewing process and interviewing the employees and figuring out, you know, I remember one thing you told me that was really, really interesting is that you through the process of interviewing, you stated that all the problems within the company were fixable, which was a giant sigh of relief for an investor because, you know, oftentimes, you know, we're so high level, we look at something and we say, you know, like, I, how do we even get out of this? And for you as an operator to come in and just say like, oh, yeah, no, this isn't that big of a deal. Like, I mean, I can fix this. I just need some time and some capital. And oftentimes, like founders, especially when they're first time founders, don't understand problems at that because they're first time founders, and they may or may not have had software company experience. So you're dealing with a level of experience that, you know, is, is nice. Um, so tell me a little bit how you thought about the issues that you were hearing and how you, from an operator's perspective, prioritize them. Yeah, just to make things super clear for the, the listeners, Allbound was really lucky before I joined that you, David, were available to you know pinch hit and step in and keep things going. Uh, I definitely benefited you know, during that time that there wasn't a CEO in place from the changes that you made and keeping everyone okay. <laughs> so that by the time I showed up, there was, you know, a, a company worth, worth, worth uh, investing time in, in, in. So thank you. And, and the company, you know, to a person is grateful um, about that. For your question, the first thing you always start with is product. And you look at you know, where you have product market fit, where you have happy customers and where you have unhappy customers. Why did people buy this product? What did they think the product was going to do? Did it do those things? Where did it fit? Where did it fall short? Some of the things that were really great in the usage of the product that when we sold it and it was implemented right and it was used right and it was supported right and that the right customer was using it, it had a wonderful return on investment where it grew their channel sales. And so, you know, when things went wrong, it was sold to the wrong people or it was sold to do the wrong things or it wasn't implemented to do the things that it did. And those things look 
tremendously bad when <laughs> when it's not done right. And so there definitely looks like there were problems to be had. You know, these are normal things with a 12-person company where people are, are young and haven't done these things before and they're just sitting in a room trying to figure it out as they go. And so you always, always start with the product and the customer and you get those things right. And then from there, you get um, your gross margin, right? So if it's if it costs you twenty grand to implement a ten grand uh, system, you're definitely going to go broke, and it's just a matter of time. And so, can you get the same happy customers to pay you sufficiently, and can you deliver it sufficiently that there's enough margin for you to to survive, so that you have a default alive approach for each customer that you sell? After you figure that out, then how do you create? an increase in value for those customers that you have so that they want to stay with you forever and ever. And then you're building up a marketing and sales engine to see how big this thing can go. And it shouldn't just be, you know, if you build it, they will come. You need to really understand how many people are actually out there looking for these types of solutions and who are they, how many of them exist, and are you displacing something? Because, you know, over 70% of the customers we sell although we compete for every one of them, have not used this before. So they're using spreadsheets and they're using emails and prayers to run their, their channel programs. <laughs> prayers, I like and, that. You know, moving to a place where they have the digital body language of their own partners and customers so that they can succeed uh, is just a, a, a really nice improvement in their world. And so you feel like you can make that difference, then you then you work on those other items next. And so, you know, when you come in and these all, things all look urgent and they all look like they're on fire, the first thing you start with is product and customers and deeply understand those and then move outward from there. Yeah, no, I, I think, you know, obviously that makes a ton of sense. I think understanding gross margin is something that falls uh, and is not really paid attention to as much as it should in that product market fit stage because you have to have an offering that even though you're not, you know, quote unquote, in scale mode, you have to have almost a, a set of goods or a set of features that is replicable from uh, one use case to another. And so did Allbound have that? You know, one of the key things with gross margin that a lot of companies do wrong is they don't include their implementation and support costs. And so when you just look at a company that has just their, say, their AWS bill as their only cost of goods sold uh, and don't include the people that it takes to go live and the people that it takes to support it, then you're not, you don't have an accurate understanding of gross margin for that company. A lot of times what looks like a good gross margin, you can actually go broke on. Early on in Allbound's history, Allbound had been a marketing agency before converting to be a SaaS company in 2017. You know, so they had a heritage uh, at that time of doing a little bit more bespoke work for customers. The problem with that bespoke work is it's not replicable to your point. One thing that you have to figure out really quickly is, is what is the replicable and implementable <laughs> uh, system and does that have sufficient value? And very quickly, it was easy to understand that there was that and that that was something we could sell and that we 
at the time were priced well under the market. And so by moving into the middle of the market uh, for buyers and pricing and above market on features was a winning formula for us to grow very quickly. How much of that, you know, replacing bespoke is a good term for it, work, customizable work was customer education on best practices of what they needed because you said we didn't replace anything so they had nothing to compare it to versus just trying to do anything to get the sale yeah no i think that you know great salespeople spend more time listening during initial phone calls than speaking and not great salespeople jump right into product demos and discussing features you know, these channel leaders that could be a, a VP of channel sales, it could be a director of channel marketing, they have di- different roles and different different responsibilities. They have goals that they want to have at the end of the year. The more deeply you understand them and what will make them successful, the more quickly you'll understand whether you have the right set of things to solve those problems. What we have done is actually move to a little bit more discerning approach to who we're a fit for. And it sometimes surprises our prospects for us to get on calls and recommend that they do not buy (laughs) all bound. So we're looking for people that are scaling a channel program that are looking to eliminate some of the manual effort that is there. They're looking to grow their their revenue pretty dramatically and want a tool to do that. And for those people, we're great. We are not great for people that have never done channel before and are figuring it out. Just like if you bought a CRM like Salesforce to manage your sales team, but you never sold anything before, you're going to do a bad job of implementing it because you'll have no process in place. So we'll do better for your channel program for the one that you're looking to scale and and do better. And it's the same thing. And so what we'll do for people that are too early is we'll direct them to a lot of content and and groups and places to learn how to get started. And then we'll be that nice second step for them um, after that point. So by being more consultative and listening and providing information where what they should do that might not even be a sale of our software they learn to trust us but more importantly than that we don't end up with uh you know the wrong customers which are bad for them and bad for us in in the long run so narrowing who we sold to is probably a big big part of that uh and then upgrading the salesforce we have an amazing chief revenue officer uh dave thompson one of the top decisions i've made here was hiring him and then we have one of the greatest heads of marketing I've ever worked with, Tori Barlow. And so when Tori reaches out to uh, see who's out there in the market, she does a great job of, of finding the right people. And then Dave's uh, team uh, as a chief revenue officer, both on the sales side and on the retention side, do a fantastic job of making sure that these are the right fit and being consultative about the approach to them. And so we've been able to make a pretty dramatic impact on hundreds of companies' channel programs because of that. One thing that really comes to mind right now as you're, as you're talking about this white space of the mid-market in channel you know, I think of Ben Thompson's you know, bundling and unbundling of, of uh, technology. And my question to you in, in relation to the, all of the MAR stack is, would you consider Allbound a platform? 
Yeah, I think that word has both positive and negative connotations depending on your audience. What Allbound is, is a portal that uh, partners both join into to collaborate to sell things together, right? But what happens from that uh, portal is they link out to other things, whether it's their HubSpot or, you know, for or, or some other uh, marketing automation system for messaging, or they link out to their CRM for uh, database of truth on who their customers are and, and others. So what we find is that we become a layer inside of their tech stack, their marketing tech stack that connects to the other pieces. And so for us, it really feels like this portal is a platform where other technologies add on to. And to prove that out, we've added, you know, a number of items on that we've been able to um, sell into our base and feel really natural as part of that, that platform or portal. No, that's great. So now the company's a rocket ship. Tell me a little bit about that. First of all, how did you know when you had, where you felt good enough about product market fit? Tell me the story around when you said, okay, now is the time to really step on the gas. And you felt good about acceleration of sales. Well, I think that no good CEO ever feels great about product market fit. Every great CEO is always looking for how to do better. And there's always better to be done. You know, I think that... Uh, another better CEO might have performed uh, at an even better clip than than what we we've done here at at Allbound. But you know the reason we've had the success we've had has been because of the customers being successful with the product. You know if you look at our case studies and white papers of the the money they're making, uh, you know using our product, that's one. One of the metrics I personally love is the promotions that happen. You know, we have a lot of our customers that bought our product and have been promoted to really high level roles in some really meaningful companies uh, through the success of that program. And I think that that's great when, you know, the head of channel becomes the chief revenue officer or the head of mergers and acquisitions or other very cool titles within uh, really cool companies. And, uh, but at a company level, the, the metric that we're, incredibly focused on its monthly partner engagement. So for our customers, partners, are they showing up every day and doing meaningful work, whether that's registering deals, whether that's uh, completing learning tracks, whether that is sharing out content socially, whatever that set of metrics are for our customers, we're very, very fixated from a product perspective, how to add more, how to measure them better, how to make suggestions to our customers based on what we see as other companies' behavior and so forth. So we um, uh, that would be our, our key metric. And as that has gone up and up and up, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, we saw the biggest rise um, as people were, were looking to collaborate with partners while stuck at home. And you know we had some features that went up 900% in usage of um, how partners were using these, these features. And some went up uh, by 200%. And so... Somewhere between two and nine hundred percent is a really good monthly gain on any any product usage. And from um, a landscape market perspective, do you believe that's here to stay? You know, I've really um, been pleasantly impressed with the growth of the market. I think that it's expanded dramatically during COVID. And uh, what we found is at the beginning of COVID, when people thought things were 
much more dark. We saw that massive usage, which gave us a lot of confidence during both good and bad times for the usage of the product. But what I would say is, you know, you can look at Jay McBain, who covers this space for Forrester, or Lona Hansen, who covers this space over um, at Gartner, and they would give you a, a CAGR of, you know, 20, 30%, um, over 20%, more like 30%, depending on, on which one. Um, per year and are seeing, you know, hundreds of millions being spent in, in PRM and, and billions being spent in channel technology overall and seeing that CAGR for that overall number going up pretty dramatically over time. Um, and we're just growing at a higher clip than the rate of the market because we're taking an unfair share, which allows us to be one of the faster growing, uh, companies in what's a really good space. So I've really enjoyed watching that, you know, that's one of those things that as a CEO, you don't have control of, of market dynamics when you're, uh, you know, at the size. So being a growing company in a growing space is, is something that you should definitely uh, look for if you're, if you're looking to take on your first CEO gig. That's, that's fantastic. And I really feel like reading these reports, these Gartner's and Forrester reports are, are super, super interesting and um, shouldn't be taken for granted. There's lots of work. That's why these reports are so expensive. One of these things in the reports when I jumped in as interim CEO that I read was just the natural growth rate uh, in Europe, um, specifically Western Europe. And Daniel, you have opened up uh, an office in Europe, so I'd love to hear a little bit about that and you know what what that was like and managing an international team. Yeah, in general, you don't hire European salespeople for an American B two B SaaS company as early as we did. But what we found was that uh, channel programs mature faster in Europe than they do in the United States. And it's, it's obvious once you think about it, which is, you know, if uh, you're running a program, a company here in the United States, and I'm in Atlanta, Georgia, I don't go hire a channel person to sell for me in Kentucky, right? Like that doesn't make sense. But if you're running a fintech company in London, you hire uh, channel partners in Germany, as an example, to help you sell locally in Germany. And so people end up with channel uh, distribution at an earlier stage in, in the company cycle, which makes for a lot more mature programs across a higher number of companies. And, you know, the buyers for our technology, they don't want to wait until people in Arizona are awake for support and for answering questions and, and so forth. And so, you know, although we had been building up our headquarters here in Atlanta, um, the right thing to do was to give them people that were local to them and having, um, you know, uh, we're on AWS, having AWS uh, spun up in, in Frankfurt for our European customers. And so they could be hosted locally, supported locally, sold to locally. And it, it's really, really helped. Uh, there's a lot of very specific privacy laws that you want to make sure you're you're doing the right things for when you're over there. And and so having Europeans uh, take the lead for that, now it, they account for around 40% of our, our revenue. It's just a fantastically run team uh, by Meshach Amuafuster um, over there. Did you go out there and hire everybody yourself? Did you know somebody that you brought on? How did you get all this uh, talent? Yeah. So, you know, the other thing is when you hire at the beginning of a pandemic during Brexit, 
you get <laughs> a really good caliber of resume uh, for people that want to work for you. We felt like some weeks were the only people hiring in Europe. <laughs> and uh, so we were very fortunate to be able to be discerning and get incredibly talented, very, very hardworking people that um, are highly representative of our company and do a great job over there. Um, you know, hiring across the globe has gotten so much harder for everybody. Um, what we've chosen to do is not uh, shorten our process and to just be just as discerning and the belief that a bad hire is so much more expensive than uh, no hire. And so we've been able to, to hire uh, even during this time, but also be maybe a bit slower than we used to be. But in the beginning, it was a lot of hiring over Zoom. I mean, it wasn't like you could go there. One funny thing was uh, when the, the team first could get together, uh, the initial few hires all realized that they were over six foot five. And, uh, <laughs> no, one, no one knew that because they'd only you know spoken for months over Zoom. Uh, today, we have a, a, bit, a bit more of a range in, in heights, but uh, it was pretty funny that the first set of five people were so tall. Yeah, I'd be on the bottom decile of that spectrum. Me too. <laughs> so you also set up a really successful uh, technology R&D office in India, which everyone talks about, everyone experiments with. The level of success, I think, vacillates. Tell me what was your secrets of success in setting up a subsidiary in India? Yeah. So these are full-time people. This is not any sort of outsourcing. This is uh, amazing engineers that work for us. Um, so when I worked at uh, PGI, I sat at a table when we were starting the innovation lab and it was a uh, head of design and a head of engineering. And that was, uh, and the person that sat with me on our projects was Kaushal Panjwani. And Kaushal um, is one of those uh, incredibly bright, incredibly kind, incredibly charismatic heads of engineering. And he uh, was was here in Atlanta and we were working together for quite some time. And then for lots of family reasons, he uh, moved back to India and we stayed friends. And so he was my first phone call for, you know, leading up this engineering effort. And he just happened to still be in India and not sitting at a table with me in Atlanta. He has an ability to recruit top-notch talent and keep top-notch talent because he creates such an amazing place to work. Is such a such a great person to learn from. He could have been anywhere, and it would have still been this type of success. He just happened to be there in India. There, there are obviously challenges when you have some people in Arizona and some people in Atlanta and some people in London, some people in India. And one of the things that I would strongly recommend um, is to be thoughtful about when you do meetings and when you can do uh, asynchronous communication. So like if we're working on a product together and I'm in India and you're in Arizona, can you record you know, what you worked on and then pass it over to me and then I work on it and then limit the number of, of, of meetings that we have so that we're not keeping everyone at weird hours you know, meeting on every day. And having very thoughtful approaches and, and agendas to when you do meet. When you do those things right, it makes it more sustainable over long periods of time. And then on top of that, it lets you realize that there's no country, whether it's India, whether it's the United States, whether it's Western Europe, like, like England, that has 
a monopoly on talent and it lets you hire talent where talent is. Yeah, I think America definitely got it wrong with uh, some of the immigration laws that they have specifically around, um, you know, some of these people that are phenomenally talented. And I think we're definitely losing on that on that front. My, my dream scenario would be that the United States would let the top graduates of any technical institution uh, be given a green card as long as they you know, can pass whatever checks you need for safety reasons. Uh, what, if, what if we were just automatically allowing the top people into our country? Uh, you see like someone like Eric Wan, who is the CEO founder of Zoom. It took him, it was eight, nine or 10 applications to, to get to the United States. What if we let more of them in earlier? How, you know, how amazing would innovation be? It would be absolutely incredible. And we're losing out on that, unfortunately. Can I ask you what the revenue is at Allbound? Yeah. So we uh, closed out last year at 7.4 million run rate and that's a 70% growth. And we're looking at similar growth this year. That's fantastic. Unbelievable. And that's 70% from much larger numbers. So that's incredible progress. Being at scale, I would say you're definitely at scale now. And having it being one of the most competitive technology markets uh, from a job perspective there probably has ever been. How do you keep your people? How do you, you know, how do you, how do you scale culture? How do you make Allbound a great place to work? Yeah. So I think there's a few things to think about. For the people that we're a good fit for, we become a destination of choice for a job. And for the people we're not a good fit for, they're not going to work with us. So, you know, I've got good friends that work at Apple and work at Google and work at, at some of these other places. You know, a friend of mine that was at Facebook said that they were waiting for their boss to pass away, sort of jokingly, in order to get promoted. Because <laughs> uh, there's such a limited uh, number of people that get to that next level. And they wanted to get to that next level. You know, last year, we hired a lot of people, but we gave a lot more people chances to move up. We promoted 56% of our people to higher level roles last year um, or this year. And then last, uh, or then I guess that was 2021, sorry. I mean, it's, it's already January, right? So uh, last year it was 56%. And, and, you know, even during 2020, we promoted a, a massive percentage. And, and so as you grow, you're trying to provide opportunities for people to learn new skill sets so that... You know, your, your top outbounding SDR gets to move up to be an account executive and your uh, top senior account executive gets to uh, manage a, a team of her own and so on and so forth. And but at first, that really came down to you. I mean, you were the only one who had any kind of experience of companies at scale, right? I mean, that, that it's nice, but there is, a, there is a, a drawback to that as well. Yeah, no, I, I think that... You know, when people are looking at maybe a little bit more money from a larger company, but there isn't the promotability, if you build the right methodology for people to have career growth, then, you know, better that they grow in their career and, and, and think that they're gaining skills that they could even take elsewhere and they'll stay with you longer than if um, they feel like there's more opportunity elsewhere. So, you know, I think that that is a cultural choice and it becomes very challenging for those of us that manage other people because you have to be constantly on the lookout for what skill sets that these people need to have and you want them to have and they want to have. And are you providing opportunities for them to learn them? Do they really learn them? And how do you test that? 
And that's hard. And I wouldn't say that we've got it 100% figured out. But when we do have it figured out, it's a beautiful thing. Mm -hmm. That's great. And what about from a culture perspective? You know, how do you how do you keep people engaged and talking with each other and having that kind of camaraderie that you would have in an in-person setting in a virtual world? It's not easy and it's not perfect. We had a leg up in the beginning of the pandemic because we were in multiple locations. And so we were used to working together over, you know, Zoom and we have uh, SalesLoft and we have Slack and we have lots of tools that help us and Jira and others that help us to collaborate. And that's good. And we have meetings that are set up that don't give preference to in-person uh, team members versus, you know, external because we're all external at some point. So I think we were faster in being okay with being remote than other people. But as the pandemic has moved on, there are definitely darker moments where you have a young team that's stuck in apartments in India or the United States or England and and, you know, it's very lonely and it doesn't matter how much Zoom coffee times and game show playing that you do. It just sucks. And, you know, it's important as a company to, you know, we would declare a couple of days holidays when things were getting a little, little dire and letting people go out on hikes and things like that. And we would, um, you know, try to send, you know, gifts and different things to people and, and try to... Uh, have social times that were built in in between meeting times across departments. But I, I won't you know, tell you that we have everything 100% figured out because sometimes it's just lonely being in your apartment in Atlanta. Like it just is. Yeah. No, I, yeah, it's, it, it's hard to replace, but I think we all are just doing the best we can. But you are having a big summit coming up, right? Well, we will have one in 2022, but uh, based on Omicron and the State Department locking down for certain countries, we're pushing this out to a little bit later in the year. So we will be announcing a new date uh, soon, as soon as we know when uh, people will be allowed to travel. But we've had such a pressing desire for our uh, team members to have interaction with our customers, our customers wanting to learn from each other, that we will be having a customer summit coming up in 2022. Unfortunately, with Omicron, there's been some additional lockdowns and changes on visa statuses and things like that. So we're giving the State Department and the CDC and everyone else a little bit more time for things to hopefully come a little more right. Yeah, that sucks because I really want to party. I want to see you guys all in one room. From an early stage company, as a VC, I, I see a lot of pitch decks. I, I see a lot of you know plans and I see uh, tons of early stage companies trying to attack partnerships while doing direct sales. And generally, my experience with that has not been great uh, because... The path to channel is generally very long tail. Um, it's very laborious. You have to spend so much time training your partners. You're pretty much doing the work for the partner and they're giving away your revenue for, for that privilege. So my, my experience with earlier stage companies is, um, is definitely jaded. Adopting channel strategies. When, when do you think it's appropriate for a company to ad adopt channel strategies? And, and when when's the ROI start to happen if it's being done right? You know, I think that as a rule of thumb that, you know, very early stage companies not doing channel tends to be right. 
but it's really important to pay attention to when that's wrong. Just like with Allbound, when you know we saw that we needed to have a presence in Europe because the market was there and we were missing out on the market without that, we went outside of what was considered normal, if you will, for an earlier stage company. And it's really worked for us because that's where our customers and how they buy. And I say the same, same thing is exactly true for, for a channel. Adding in a channel motion for something that's unnatural for your, your customers should never happen. It doesn't matter your size. But if there are competitors out there and there's an ecosystem of people that are referring or reselling your type of solutions, and you're not getting those people excited to work with you, you're going to miss out on that market and your competitors will eat your lunch. Um, you know, for instance, if David, you were looking at any sort of security technology, I think not having a channel strategy for most security solutions that I see out there, even very early on, is very risky. That there is just such a great ecosystem of people that are helping uh, security tech companies to, you know, get into important accounts and helping them become successful in those accounts that not working with those companies means that someone else will. And so maybe it's not a day one thing, right? But you should keep your eye on that and you should at least be generating relationships with those potential partners so that when it is the right time that you're ready for that. So some solutions like that make sense. If you're in uh, the type of solution that uh, marketing agencies work with and you don't work with them, Turns out they're really good at selling uh, solutions, um, you know, SaaS solutions that uh, go along with their services. And there's really amazing ecosystems uh, that work with them. So, example, WP Engine's a customer of ours, and they've just mastered working with uh, web developers and marketing agencies. And anyone that goes up against them that tries to win doesn't have that doesn't have that ecosystem. It's really hard to win. And so, yeah, you have to think about your margins. You have to think about, you know, the rev share piece of it. But the force multiplication can be so fantastic that uh, you need to think about it. And then if there is an ecosystem already built for you and you just are plugging into it, it might be worth investing in earlier. Uh, not day one, but uh, for you to figure out when, when they're touching your buyers and how often they're touching your buyers. So where's the channel market going? What are the hot topics within channel? I was taking a look at your website. I took a look at some of your competitors' websites. I'm seeing the word uh, partner experience being dropped everywhere. Uh, I've seen companies like Crossbeam raising tons of money for um, from Andreessen Horowitz and some other top tier VCs. Where, where do you see where do you see uh, this market heading in the next five ten years? Yeah, I mean, for your listeners that don't know the history of channel technology, you know, some of the players that have been around for 10, 15, 20 years, you know, built a separate stack of technology that works for the channel team. So their own marketing tools and their own uh, content tools and different things that don't work well with the rest of the ecosystem. And so, 20 years ago, the market was very limited. And as more modern tools, um, you mentioned Crossbeam and, and us all bound come out there and work well with the tools they already have across the whole revenue stack, the adoption rate has really gone up. And so some of the 
lines of what was bought from which channel vendor are going to get blurred over the next five years. And what that means is you're going to see some mergers and acquisitions as people are going to expect to buy all of their channel technology from you know, one or two vendors as opposed to seven. And you're going to start to see that of the 70, according to the World Trade Organization, 75% of the world's goods are sold with some channel partner. Investors are going to demand to have better clarity of why one channel partner versus another is working and how you're going to incent them the right way. And so that experience for those partners that could work with you or work for others starts to become really paramount where you don't want them to have an annoying time trying to register a deal over an email with you and to you know wait till the next day to get content co-branded and so forth. So thinking about how easy it is to get paid, how easy it is to work with you, these are things that are going to affect uh, why some will win and some won't win over the next five years. So talking about the greater technology landscape, aside from Mar- MarTech, what is the most interesting company right now in technology, in your opinion? I think that uh, my wife's family lives in rural parts of Louisiana, and I find myself speaking about Starlink with them and with others. Uh, I have a lot of family that comes from South Africa and, and different places that the internet is still not quite there from quality of connection being ubiquitous for people. And I've never seen a company more likely to solve such a big problem than Starlink. So I find myself talking about them more often than others. Yeah, I would. it's really good to be a SpaceX investor because I think that divestment, you know, I've heard rumors about them going public. I think that could be a ginormous opportunity. In this day and age, I believe that everybody should have the internet no matter where you are. Yeah, uh, and you can see how much, how disruptive they're being with how people are going negative on them by right? coal countries and so forth because becoming a ubiquitous internet provider that is not tied to government restrictions, not tied to you know certain geographies and things like that is is crazy and exciting. So, what do you think about the capital markets these days being a, a SaaS a SaaS CEO? When I joined Allbound, I was so excited how once a month someone would reach out to me and suggest they could give us money. Now, you know, we're on Wednesday. I've already had seven people reach out offering money. So it's definitely <laughs> there's there's uh, you know one of those things. I was going to ask to give you money on the show, so that can make that. <laughs> you already have our routing numbers, so yeah. Can send <laughs> I'm just going to shove some more cash into it. So, uh, do you own any stocks? Uh, I do. I actually have put some money uh, through uh, Jason Calacanis's um, deals. I think that uh, there's a couple good ones there that are early stage that I, I've put what limited I can, I'm allowed to put in into those. I obviously have bought a lot of my options here at Allbound and I'm a huge, huge, huge part of my money always goes in the company I'm at. And then... Uh, some of my prior companies that I was at also have have some have some of my money wrapped up, but I don't really look at um, too many early stage companies. It's pretty time intensive to be a CEO here. Uh, one other one I would want to point out is uh, Carbon Six. They are doing a really cool roll up of uh, tools for Amazon sellers, and uh, I am a shareholder there, so I am talking my book as... as yeah, pump it. <laughs> pump it up. Uh, but I think I'll put a disclaimer they, at the end, so you can just pump it up as much as you want. But I, I think that they have been growing at hundreds of percent a year, and I think that's a really cool market. 
yeah, that is a super. And um, what Thrasio is doing in that market and buying these brands is uh, really, really compelling. What is the best piece of advice that you've ever received? There's so many good ones. So I think I'll give you a couple uh, pieces of, of advice. One of them was uh, from Wayne Kellum, who's our chairman here at Allbound and has been an amazing mentor, not just to me, but to a whole uh, bunch of entrepreneurs in the Atlanta area and beyond. Um, I remember that I was running a sales team and he joked that if someone wanted to buy GPS ankle bracelets in Alaska, I'd probably get on the next flight. If you're a CEO or a head of sales and you're not figuring out very quickly who is not a customer for you, you're going to waste a ton of your money and a ton of your time and you don't have a ton of either. Very, very quickly becoming discerning in the uh, discovery phase of sales was something that I... I would credit Wayne Kellum for. We have a, a chairman, Jim Armstrong, and uh, he wrote an autobiography going down the road. And before there was agile methodologies, JDA, which he founded, was doing that where they build, uh, where Jim would write code and then have it sit with the customer and iterate and iterate over that. The customer feedback loop for the iteration matters more than being done uh, and complete out the gate. You'll end up making a better product by including your customers earlier in the process. So those are two good guys to learn a ton from that uh, would be advice from each of them. That's great. All right. Well, there you have it. Daniel, thank you so much for jumping on the Capital Stack podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure and continue... uh, kicking butt at all bound. And we really look forward to seeing what's happening next year. We have to get you back on the show. Thank you so much for having me. And uh, I think this would be a great show. Thank you for tuning in to the Capital Stack Podcast. Make sure to share this with someone you know that can benefit from this content. Remember to support this show by rating, reviewing, and subscribing. David Ball is the founder and general partner at DWP Capital. All opinions expressed by David and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of DWP Capital. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for decisions. David and guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed on this podcast.